0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, let's open to the book of 2 Kings. Tonight we're going to start in chapter 13. We're going to go all the way through chapter 17. The decline and the fall... Of the northern kingdom. So we, the, the way the author has uh, shaped these books together, because remember in the Hebrew Bible they're just one book. And we, we've gone through, in Leviticus, we went through a, a chiastic structure. You remember how we kind of start with something and we kind of progress to a different theme? And then we kind of progress using those same themes. And we end up back where we started with kind of the original theme, bookends, if you will. And this, this book, First and Second Kings, the Kings, is laid out much the same way. We begin with a certain theme and a certain style. We have these little interludes in between where we zoomed in on particular stories like Elijah and Elisha and Ahab. Last week, we began to sort of zoom back out. We began to see that pattern of this king and that king, and they died and they died. This week, we're full force back into that a uh, rapid pace through the kings. So we are this week zooming back out as Israel faces the northern kingdom of Israel faces God's judgment. In the section this week we see Elisha's death and that is a signal of Israel's coming demise. It is also the end of what we call a prophetic cycle. You remember when we went through the book of Judges last summer into fall, whenever that was, we went through the book of Judges, how I drew attention to the cycle that we kind of go over in Judges and throughout the Old Testament. The people are blessed by God, but they're told to obey or lose their blessing. Inevitably, they always stray away into idolatry and to sin. Usually, God raises up another nation or another people or some um, people plague or something to punish the people to judge them so that they call out to God for repentance and deliverance God sends a deliverer a prophet or a judge or a king that saves them from their their plague or from the other nations or whatever it is and then we're back to square one with God's blessing but you better behave and then of course we go back into the cycle again so we're going to see that cycle rehearsed here time and time again in the book of Kings we see the end of one of those cycles with the death of Elisha One of God's choice messengers and servants is taken out of the picture and the people are left in their sins. God's judgment in the end will be swift and in his judgment there will be no mercy for the nation of Israel. Big picture this week, God brings judgment upon his people because they have sinned against him by continually pursuing idolatry. The handouts are gone. Did everybody get one? We had, like, just enough? Everybody's got one? Does anybody not have one that wants one? Okay, good. I'll have somebody go make copies. So let's begin in 2 Kings chapter 13 with the reigns of Jehoahaz, Jehoash, and the death of Elisha. Now, just to make it even more confusing this week, remember there was Jehoash and Joash and uh, Joram and Jehoram, and they're kind of all the same name but different people. We have something very similar going on uh, this week, too, and I'll, I'll draw attention to that when we get there. Jehoahaz's reign is marked by more idolatry and further apostasy. If you begin looking in chapter 13, we're introduced to Jehoahaz the son of Jehu, who began to reign in Israel and Samaria. And then we have this familiar pattern. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And then we begin to read about the anger of the Lord and the coming judgment. Another part of that pattern down in verse 8. Uh, Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash his son, reigned in his place. But in the middle here, verses 3 through 6, we see that prophetic cycle rehearsed for us. Look at verse 3. After we learn that Jehoahaz did evil, verse 3, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel... And he gave them continually, that seems like it's an ongoing thing, into the hand of Hazael, you remember Hazael is now the king of Syria, into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought favor of the Lord. So we have uh, God's blessing that is ruined by Jehoahaz's sin. God raises up this army, the Syrians, to persecute his people, causing Jehoahaz in verse 4 to seek the favor of the Lord and the Lord listened to him for he saw the oppression of Israel how the king of Syria oppressed them verse 5 therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior so there's that continual cycle they cry out to the Lord he sends them a savior a prophet a king or a military conqueror to help them out so that they escape from the hand of the Syrians and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly verse 6 here's the next part of the cycle nevertheless they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam So we see that cycle, and there's this indication that this is just going to keep on happening. And we have the end of that cycle. They sin, they cry out for deliverance, God delivers them, but then they fall back into sin. Jehoahaz's reign, as we read there, ends with more failure and more death. Verse 2, he did what was evil, and then verses 8 and 9, he died. His successor, Jehoash, succeeds Jehoahaz as king of Israel. Now remember, there's another Jehoash or Joash that's king of Judah. So Don't confuse those two. Uh, In fact, in verse 10, you see the differentiation. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, which could also be Jehoash, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. So you really need those charts. And again, if you want one of those printed out for you, you can find it on Google pretty easily. If you look up just charts of kings of Israel and Judah, you can see how they line up. But if you want one of those, uh, let me know, and I'll print, I'll print you one, and we'll get some of those out. Uh, that'll help you see the differences between these, because it does get confusing with these similar names. So what patterns do we see again? What pattern do we see again? We see that they disobeyed, and we see that they died. Uh, We see the same thing here in verses 10 through 13. Jehoash began to reign, but in verses 12 and verses 13, he died. And then we begin to see that pattern reemerge again, and it's going to get faster. Now, the way I kind of think about this is as water is kind of going down the drain... You know, when I uh, give Lily or Anna or Isaac a bath, and they have the big bathtub, and then we start draining the water. You know, it seeming it, it's going down. It goes down pretty slow, but it seems like, you know, we'll never go, we'll never go, we'll never go. Then you get to that last little bit of water, and it just kind of all, all at once. That's kind of the picture I had in mind when I began to read this pattern re That they live, they're wicked, they died. They live, they're wicked, they died. And so whereas we began the book, we kind of slowed down a little bit with Elisha and Elijah and Ahab and all those kings. We kind of slowed down. We're getting to the bottom of the barrel. And it, we're kind of the picking up the pace as the water is going down the drain in this downward spiral, spiral of Israel's sin. Now in verses 14 through 25, we have an interesting episode uh, between Elisha uh, and the king. And the king is worried that Syria is going to come and overtake them. And so Elisha says to him, verse 15, take a bow and arrow. Took a bow and arrow. He said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And he did. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. He opened it. Elisha said, shoot, and he shot, and he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow uh, of the victory over Syria. He shoots eastward because, according to many scholars and commentators here, that was often the direction that the attacks came from Syria. And so Elisha is using this sort of object lesson, as the prophets often did, to uh, convey his message to the king. The king is worried that Syria is there. They're going to come overtake them. Elisha says, no, take your bow, shoot it out here. Just as you shot that arrow uh, towards the army of Syria, the Lord is going to give you victory. And then we have this this little strange uh, scenario here in verse 18. He said, take the arrows. He took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said... (laughs) You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. This is a a peculiar episode. I mean, it's like one of those, you know, where they shoot the arrows and how many arrows you shoot, how many years you're going to add to your life. And it's this weird little object lesson that, that seems to carry with it the power of God. That Elisha says, strike the ground. I find it interesting that Elisha didn't give him instructions. I mean... If you told me, take this arrow and strike the ground, I probably would have just hit the ground once. I mean, I just, that's what the instruction sounds like to me. But he struck three times, and Elisha was still mad. You should have struck five or six times. Now, how all this plays out, I don't know. <laughs> At the end of the story, though, we understand God is sovereign, God is in control... And what happens between Israel and Syria is exactly what God wills to happen between Israel and Syria. The the fate of the nations is not in this king's hands. God uses these secondary means to accomplish his purpose. So for whatever reason, Elisha is mad. He's only struck the ground three times. They're only going to have three victories over Syria until Syria overtakes them. So... In in all of this, though, we do see a little window into the spiritual state of Israel. A lot of the commentators I was reading point out that no one seems to care much anymore. Now, I'm not a big sports fan, but when I go to games, you know, go to a football game at the high school or something, uh, it's hard to come back from just being completely pummeled by the other team. You know, say you go into halftime at the high school football game and the score is like, I don't know, 42 to zero. Uh, it's it's going to be hard for the losing team to come into the second half with enough morale and enough energy to really come back and do anything about that. I mean, I, I'm sure it's happened. I think it happened in the Super Bowl last year, didn't it? Look at me in my sports. Um, so it can happen, but the morale is down, the energy is down, the passion is down, and that's the vibe I get from reading this story, that rather than energetically obeying the prophet and energetically, willingly Enthusiastically obeying what the prophet says, it's half-hearted, it's empty, and it's a revelation of not just where the king's heart is, but also where the nation's heart is. They're just not in it anymore. For God's glory, even for the glory of Israel, we're going to see that later when the kings outright sell Israel to Assyria. So we see a little window into the, kind of the decreasing spiritual morale of the king and of Israel. In Second uh, Kings chapter 14 uh, into verse 15, we begin to see these civil wars erupt between Israel and Judah, and these civil wars will foreshadow things to come. They will foreshadow things to come. I missed one, didn't I? Elisha's death marks an ominous I don't think I put it in my PowerPoint. Elisha's death marks an ominous turning point, an ominous turning point. In the narrative. Yep, I left it out. My bad. Turning point is the blanks. Elisha's death. And we read of Elisha's death there in verses 14 through the end. It's interesting, though, that as as dramatic as Elijah's exit was, and as dramatic as we read some of the deaths in the Old Testament, and we really just have verse 20... So Elisha died, (laughs) and they buried him. And uh, and then it talks about the Moabites rising up against Israel. So it's kind of a lackluster ending, but again, that fits with the theme, doesn't it? That we're seeing that decreased spiritual fervor, this decrease of passion for the Lord, of passion for obedience, even a decrease of passion for their own land and their own nation. And then it makes sense that as Elisha, I mean, this mighty man of God that, that takes Elijah's place with a double portion of his anointing, so he dies, and so the, the theme I'm kind of picking up in the background on behalf of the people, on behalf of the king is big deal, who cares? Elisha died, the prophet's gone, the voice of God is missing, who cares? Then we come into these civil wars between Israel and Judah, which is a foreshadowing of things to come. Starting in chapter 14... The second year of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. So we're shifting our focus from the northern kingdom and their troubles with Syria. Now we're shifting focus down to the southern kingdom of Judah and King Amaziah. King Amaziah succeeds his father Joash, not Jehoash, the one who was just king of Israel, but Joash, king of Judah. He succeeds his father Joash as king of of judah and interestingly enough although the pattern is the same we see the report card he did good he did bad we have a rare good rating for this king look in verse three he did what was right in this, in the eyes of the lord It's a rare good rating for a king in this book but again it is not without its problems he did good yet not like david his father He did in all things as Joash, his father, had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So, relatively good rating. I mean, at this point, you kind of take what you can get, right? The lesser of two evils. He was a good king. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not to the point where he rid the land of all its idolatry, which is what Israel and what Judah needed. But then we begin to venture into um, Amaziah's pride. And in his pride, he strikes down a bunch of Edomites, verse 7. And this kind of puffs his head up a little bit. and He's ready to take on a bigger enemy. So he sets his eyes, in verse 8, on Israel. And he says in verse 8, To the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, come, come. Let us look one another in the face. Now, he does not want to get together for a staring contest. This means I want to fight you. I want war. And catch me outside. That's what he's saying to the y'all. Don't that's, Like my age and younger. Got that one. Uh, verse 8. Uh, come, let us look at one another in the face. Let's fight. Let's have a war. So he begins to provoke Israel. And it happens in verse 12 that because of his provocation, Israel rises up. There's a civil war, at least a battle. In verse 12, Judah is defeated by Israel, and every man flees to his home. But look at what happens in verses 13 through 14. Jehoash, king of Israel, they just defeated Judah, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, son of Ahaziah, Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem, star this, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, From the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver, and all the vessels that were found, star this, in the house of the Lord, and the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. It's interesting that when we see the end here of this battle, um, there are signs of things that are to come. The wall of Jerusalem is torn down, at least for a bit. And the house of the Lord is robbed. Uh, when we get to the end of Judah's decline in the next couple of lessons, we're going to see those same images come back into play, both the wall and the temple. So put a star and a circle there, we'll come back to it. In verses 15 through 19, uh, both of these kings die, Jehoash and Amaziah and what we see in their deaths is not just the further tension between Israel and Judah but the continual decline in both kingdoms that now rather than turning their attention on ridding their lands of idolatry and of pagan influence and foreign influence now they have turned their sights on each other and here at the end of this bitter civil war and Judah has been defeated we see signs of defeat and destruction that are to come, not the least of which, the walls of Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord. Well, then we're introduced to another king, starting in verse 23, Jeroboam II. Now, I ask you what seems familiar about this. Jeroboam II is the second because there was a Jeroboam the first. And if you remember all the way back towards the beginning of 1 Kings, when the kingdom was divided, it was none other than Jeroboam I, who was the first king of the now divided nation of Israel. So again, we see the bookends, that chiastic structure that takes us all the way full circle back to the beginning. And we remember the demise of Solomon and how the kingdom was split after him into these two kingdoms Jeroboam the first, king of Israel. And now we have Jeroboam the second, sort of bookending this time of division and this time of rebellion for God's people. And we're reminded in all of it, chapter 15, that as any. As good as any king might be, the author is always quick to show that none are perfect. With the rise of Jeroboam II, we see this repeated phrase uh, in verse 24. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, notice every time we have the report card about a king of Israel... And it's bad. All of them are bad. (laughs) We always have that same little bit repeated, don't we? He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the first one, who set up the golden calves and the shrines and established the false worship. Remember, uh, the first Jeroboam did that. And so every successive king of Israel we see going further and further and further down that rabbit trail after the idols. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel then to sin. Verse 28, we end the pattern again. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and all his might, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath to Judah and Israel, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles, the kings of Israel and Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel and Zechariah his son, to reign in his place. So he did bad, and now he died. Chapter 15, though, we get this little ray of light again in Judah with the rise of Azariah. Verse 3 He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Verse 4 Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now we say by this point, like, is the author just, you know, is he just plugging stuff in to say it? Like, is we just on autopilot like they did bad and Jeroboam and Nebat and stuff, and, and he did good, but they didn't take down the high places? No, the patterns have a, ooh, that'll preach, the patterns have a purpose. The patterns have a purpose to show us the bad and how it turns out and the good. But as good as any king is, we always have that follow-up, don't we? There's always the reminder that as good as they are and as good as the report card is versus the kings of Israel, nevertheless, they did not take down all the high places and they did not rid the land of idolatry. Again, the author is showing us that no matter how good the king is, he cannot be the one king that they're waiting on. He cannot be the one king that will reign forever in perfect righteousness and justice Why? Because as good as any king might be, they're not perfect. And that's the point, really, of the entire book of the kings. The mercy God shows Israel, any mercy that he shows, always flows from his own faithfulness and grace. It is not conditioned or dependent upon anything good in them. I mean, if... If God had any reason to punish a people for their sins, time and time again would have been the people of Israel and the people of Judah. I mean, he punished other nations for less. But he has left Israel there. He leaves Judah here. He keeps giving them blessing. He keeps giving them victories. For now, military victories. And every step of the way, if there's any mercy, any grace, any compassion being shown by God... We, we're, we're, we come face to face with the fact that it can't be because there's anything good about them. Oftentimes we're reading like with Ahab and these wicked kings that God is blessing them despite their sin and despite their junk. Why? Because of his faithfulness, his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because of his promises to David. When you think about your own salvation, we ought to remember that. That any goodness, any kindness, any grace that we've been shown by God is not a result of our goodness or our faithfulness. Uh, God's saving of us is not conditioned upon our obedience. God's saving of us is conditioned upon Christ's obedience. And any grace and mercy that we're shown is just that, grace. Uh, R.C. Sproul, favorite theologian, pastor, preacher, teacher, he he used to say that uh, once we start thinking that we deserve something from God, you can mark it down that you're not thinking about grace anymore. If you start to think that you deserve something from God, you better understand that you're not thinking about grace anymore because the very concept of grace is undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor from God. Any mercy, any compassion, any love he shows is undeserved and is from his faithfulness and his goodness alone. But... Despite God's goodness and God's grace and God's compassion for his people Israel, they continue to follow this path of destruction in um, sin and idolatry and apostasy. And so we come to these final chapters and we see the sort of dwindling light of the kingdom of Israel in these final kings. And the author again, picturing that water circling down the drain very quickly at the end, we begin to see this pattern and the succession of kings come very rapidly. We see the kings given to us in rapid succession, beginning in chapter 15, verse 8. In other words, as we, 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 we've been introduced to a king, and then we might have a little episode of some sort, and even though it's short, we have a little story, and then they die. And now we're just going to begin to see this king, he died, and this king, and he died, and this king, and he died. However, keep in mind that above all of this, while Israel is going through this rapid succession of kings, there's relative stability with relatively good kings in Judah. Uh, Back in in verse 3, Amaziah is a good king, and then in verse 34, in the middle of all of Israel's junk, um, we have, where's the name, Pekah uh, in Israel, And Uzziah, king of Judah. Um, And we see in verse 34 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Jotham, the the son of Uzziah, begins to reign in Judah. So while Israel's going through all this tumult, and we're going to see that in a second, there's relative stability and relatively good kings. have to say relative, don't we? Because, again, they're really good, except. (laughs) They're all really good, except this little thing. But compared to what's going on in Israel that we're going to see, That's pretty stable, and that's pretty sound leadership and righteous leadership. Israel is being torn apart by conspiracy and murder. Beginning in verse 10, we see Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspiring against the king, uh, that is, Zechariah. Yep, Zechariah is reigning, and Shalom, verse 10, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down. Put him to death, and now he reigns in his place. Look at verse 14. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalem, the son of Jabesh in Samaria. Put him to death, and he reigned in his place. Uh, look down at verse 25. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead, "...and struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Ariah, and he put him to death and reigned in his place." And then verse 30, "...then Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place." So while we have these two relatively righteous, good, stable kings in Judah, Israel is a mess. And just time after time in this rapid succession, the new king comes. And this is the first time we see that pattern. Not just that they live and they die, but there's these active conspiracies against them. Murder, assassination, king after king. At least these four times that that happens. Stability, righteousness, and this tumult and this chaos and this violence in the land of Israel. And and the author is wanting us to see the circling of the drain. (laughs) We're at the end of the line here. Israel and as we come into these very final kings uh, of Israel we see an ominous warning sign in verse 29 look at verse 29 of chapter 15 in the days of Pekah king of Israel so right in the middle of all this conspiracy and murder all the tumult in addition to that Tiglath-Pileser king of Assyria came and captured Ejon Ejon Abel Beth Makah, Janoah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, Galilee and the land of Naphtali. and he carried the people captive to Syria. So if you look at a map of these places, you begin to see Assyria creeping in, right? So in the middle of all that junk going on in Israel, all the violence, all the bloodshed, all the conspiracy and murder, they've turned in on themselves, Judah and Israel enemies. Israel's is its own worst enemy, idolatry, violence, death. In addition to that, we get this little warning sign of what's coming. We see the armies of Assyria encroaching closer and closer and closer to Israel. At the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 16, we're introduced to two more kings, Jotham and Ahaz. Even as Israel's stability is being shaken, Judah's own stability comes to an end as apostasy sets in. Again, the author may be intentionally lulling us into a false sense of security for the southern kingdom. I think he wants us to think, man, well, they're okay. right? They've, they've had two good kings in a row, two faithful t- kings, two righteous kings. Sure, they didn't take down all the idols and all the high places, but they're doing relatively well compared to Israel, which is a mess. They're doing okay. Except the author wants us to see that they're not. <laughs> they're not doing okay. And even after two relatively good kings, because they did not take down the idols in the high places, those idols and those high places are going to become their demise as well. And here we have King Ahaz of Judah now turns to abominable idolatry. Every time I say the word abominable, I think abominable snowman. He does not turn to an abominable snowman, but abominable idolatry. And the reason I chose that word is because if you look at the kind of idolatry that he falls into in verse 3, 16 verse 3, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, interesting by now... You don't just have he walked after the sins of Jeroboam, do you? That one wicked king, remember him, now it's just the kings of Israel. They're all bad, they're all wicked. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, even though he's the king of Judah. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now, why do you have that reminder? Why you have that reminder? This is the same despicable act, he says, that the Canaanites were doing when the Jews, when the Hebrews, came into the land in the first place. And it's that one kind of sacrifice above all the other idolatry of the pagan nations that God said he detested more than all of them, the sacrificing of their children to Molech and the other gods. And yet here we see what we might consider to be the re-canonization of Israel whereas in the book of Judges and Joshua we had the people of God coming in and with relative success cleaning house, removing the pagan peoples, removing the idolatry pushing them out as they took control of the land and God said don't do what they do don't worship as they do, don't act like they do, be different, be holy but now slowly what have we been seeing all of that stuff they drove out coming back in to this point where they are now participating in the most despicable and abominable form of idolatry that they know, which is child sacrifice. And we see what's happening is the, the influence and the power of God in the people of Israel on the decline as the re-canonization of the people takes place. This is furthered in verses 7 through 9. When Ahaz sends messengers to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, verse 7, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. I am yours. Ahaz took all the gold, in verse 8, that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasure of the king's house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria listened to him. And the king of Assyria marched up against, against Damascus, took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed rezinus the king of Assyria. So what happened here, except that Ahaz sells the very soul of Israel to Assyria? And we think that it's going to happen later with the military victory, but this is actually the beginning of it here. When Ahaz sends messengers to Assyria, as they're encroaching on him anyway... And he says, no, wait, 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 wait! help me out with my enemies and we'll be yours. And not only that, but here, come into the temple of the Lord and take what you want. And so we begin to see this desecration of Israel, desecration of Judah now, of Jerusalem, all the way into the house of the Lord, the temple. But the author saves the worst for last in verses 10 through 18 and that Ahaz introduces foreign worship into the temple. Look at verse uh, 10 of chapter 16. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet tiglath so this is the king of Judah, meeting with the king of Assyria, who he appeased with money from his own people and from his temple to protect him, he's overtaken Uh, Syria not Assyria he's overtaking Syria at Damascus and now they're meeting there to talk and when he saw the altar that was at Damascus that's a pagan idolatrous altar King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact and all its details and Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus so Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from, from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, the one commissioned by the Lord, the one ordained by the Lord, he removed from the front of the house From the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. And keep, now notice that differentiation, the Lord's altar and his altar. Verse 15 King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offering, and the evening grain offerings, and the king's burnt offerings, and his grain offerings, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering and their drink offering, and throw on all the blood of the burnt offering, and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Now you could just pass that phrase over. and I don't know what that means. You know what it means for him to inquire by the blood on that altar? It was a pagan form of divination. In which they would sprinkle blood, like reading tea leaves, or reading palms, or some other form of you know, looking at some object to gain insight or wisdom or direction or the future. And in this case, it would have been the blood of sacrifices, or in some cases, even the entrails of the sacrifices that would have been thrown onto the altar, and a prophet or a seer or a magician would have come and interpreted the layout and the direction of the entrails of the blood, pagan, wicked, Witchcraft that is now being introduced into the very worship not just of the people of Israel in general but here in the very temple of the Lord the Lord's altar removed Ahaz's pagan altar put in its place God's worship pushed out while Ahaz's worship is brought in so we begin to see this decline from his idolatry to his selling of his own people to Assyria And now this foreign worship introduced into the temple of the Lord. Chapter 16 is therefore kind of presented to us as the bottom of Israel's downward spiral. Because we've seen the root problem, which is idolatry, which has led to the secondary problem, the selling of the very soul of his people, which has brought us to this Last great problem. I think the author intends for us to see it that way the bottom of the barrel as this pagan satanic worship is brought into the temple of the Lord. So it doesn't take very long in chapter 17 then for us to see Israel given completely over to Assyria. And there's no long battle. There's no long, dramatic, epic reading that, that takes place between Judah or Israel and uh, Assyria. No long war, no series of battles, no plagues, no signs, no miracles. It just kind of happens that Assyria comes calling on Israel's debt. Remember, he had sold them to Assyria. We're yours. We're yours if you protect us. Here's your money. Take what you want from the house of the Lord, it belongs to you. But in chapter 17 verse 4 the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, who is now king of Israel for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So since they had been sold to Assyria for their protection And since Assyria had been given those goods from the house of the Lord, the kings of Israel had given tribute to Assyria, but now this king, Hoshea did not. Instead, he's giving tribute to Egypt, probably for the same reason. Come and protect us. We're yours. We're all yours if you come and protect us. But Assyria noticed, and therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison, and the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, verse 6, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, that's Israel, the kingdom. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and he placed them in Halah, and, the, and on the harbor, uh, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Now I want you to notice what happens here is Israel is scattered. Not just are they taken, and this is important because when we get to Judah, we're going to see something different. When the, when the Assyrians come in for Israel, they don't just take them. But they take them, and this was shrewd on their part, and they scatter them. They don't keep them together as a nation. They don't keep them together as a people. But they take them and they disperse them to different kingdoms and to different peoples and to different nations. So what was that one nation of Israel now is completely broken and torn apart into pieces the author then in a kind of unusual way for this book gives us the real reasons for this judgment from God I want us to read just starting in verse 7 just let us read this together verse 7 of chapter 17 and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God now If you're reading the history lesson, why did it occur? Well, because they promised tribute to Assyria, and they failed to pay it. And the king wanted his money, and he came calling on his debt, and he took the people. That that is a reason. But the author says, here's the real reason. They sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and under the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out. There's that re-canonization. The Lord drove them out, but now they're living just like them. And in the customs that the king of Israel had practiced, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did. Whom the Lord carried away from before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet, there's the cycle, and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn. As their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. This is just a real, (laughs) I mean, that's a complete summary of everything we've seen in the book so far, isn't it? Every sin, every idolatry, every false worship, every pagan influence, all listed their force. So you want to know why this happened? had nothing to do with the debt or even the king of Assyria or even the king of Syria or any of the nations that were around. It had nothing to do with that. It's because Israel turned away from God, worshipped idols, worshipped in pagan ways, and did not obey the voice of the Lord. That's why this happened to them, the author says. Nothing else. That's why the Lord has done this, leaving Judah only. And we might say, for now. In verses 24 through the end of chapter 17, we see some interesting notes that happen in in the land of Samaria. Notice now that it's just called Samaria. We've kind of moved from the kingdom of Israel, that kingdom is no more, and those people have been taken out and spread into different nations. Now it's just the land of Samaria. And what happens in the land of Samaria, verse 24, the king of Assyria, along with scattering the Israelites, brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Avah, Hamath, and Sepharvayim, Sephar and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. Verse 25, at the beginning, at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. So God sends lions in as a plague, verse 27, the king of Assyria commands, send there one of the priests whom you carried away. So instead of the people of Israel who had been exiled and now scattered, he puts all these other foreign people in there. And they don't fear the Lord, so the Lord sends a plague of lions. (laughs) That's a great plague, isn't it? They're, They're being torn apart by lions. The king gets word of it. He says, okay, okay, send one of their priests back, one of the Israelite priests back. So they do, but verse 29 doesn't help. Every nation still made gods after its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made and every nation in the cities in which they lived. Verse 32 is interesting, though. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, Yahweh, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. Now, this is an interesting problem. If you want the the textbook word for what's going on here, it's in the Bible study book. The word is syncretism syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism. All that means is that you're just taking a little bit of everything and putting it together. A little bit of this religion, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of this worldly thing, of this pagan thing, this nation, that nation, and just putting it all together. So how does this all start? You have all these different people there. God sends the lions because they're worshiping idols. Uh, Israelite priest goes, but even with that, they don't turn away from the idolatry. Instead, they say, oh, Yahweh, let's add Yahweh to the collection. We got all our gods. We got all these other people's gods. Let's throw Yahweh in the mix. Can't hurt, right? That's the way the ancient Near East thought. Can't hurt to have one more in the mix. He'll help us when it's his time to help. When we're in his territory, he'll help us. But when we're in these other gods' territories, they'll help us. And so syncretism just takes all this stuff and puts it together. I wonder if we see anything like this in churches today. Starting all the way back with Ahaz goes into the world just tell me if this sounds familiar goes into the world sees what the world is doing says oh I like this this is better than what we do in the temple let's take this back to the church right?" sound like the modern church at all to you the modern church looks at the world modern church looks at the culture around us the modern church looks at the thoughts around us and the worship around us and says you know what That looks pretty good. Let's bring that back into the church. And so instead of worshiping the way that God has told us to worship him, and with the means by which he's told us to worship him, what are those means? The word, the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, prayer, giving, all these things God has said to do, and he's told us how to do it. Instead, we want to do our own thing. Let's invent new ways to worship. Let's invent new things to do. Let's get creative about it. What will it hurt except God has not told us to do that? And here we see where that gets to in the end. It's just taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of this religion, that philosophy, that worldview, that worldly thing, that cultural thing. We just throw it all in and just do it all. Syncretism is one of the primary problems In the modern church, because churches have gotten bored with how God has told us to worship Him. And instead of listening to what God wants from us in worship, we think it's okay to invent our own ways of worship. This was Israel's problem. I think we look in a lot of places today and we see it's a problem for us as well. That's why, prayerfully, hopefully, what we do as a church, what we sing, what we say, how we pray, what we preach, uh, down to the very things we do are things that God has told us to do. There are lots of wonderful, fun, creative, imaginative things I'm sure would be good and a talent show somewhere. <laughs> but God has not told us to do those things in worship unless we be like Ahaz and go out and find a pagan altar and bring it in and try to worship the Lord that way, or a golden calf, or any of the other ways they tried to worship God, we listen to God and we obey what he has said to do and worship. So what's this all about? How does this connect us to the New Testament and to the gospel? Well, let's remember, as I said at the beginning of this second page, God's grace and God's mercy flow from his covenant promises that's why every step of the way the author is reminding us of God's mercy because of David God's mercy because of Abraham Isaac and Jacob so any mercy that God shows is because of his word and his faithfulness not our goodness we are reminded again that God will not blot his people out completely even as Israel is carried away what are we reminded of? But Judah was left. And even as Judah is destroyed in a few weeks, we're going to see that. We'll see God's mercy there too, and that difference between what happens to them and what happened to Israel. Or yeah, Israel. However, his mercy and not blotting them out does not prevent him from judging their idolatry. We need to remember that God's mercy and his grace do not mean that he will not discipline even his own people and he does so severely here with Israel while not blotting out his people or his promises completely ultimately the people are exiled in God's judgment the end result is that they're moved away from their home and they're cast far off from their home and from the presence of God now, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter one verse twenty that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their fulfillment, that's an important word, their fulfillment in Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verses 54 through 55, when Mary is singing her song, we call it the Magnificat, after she had been told by the angel Gabriel that she was going to give birth to Jesus, and he will be the king that sits on David's throne in righteousness and justice. Mary then erupts in song called the Magnificat because she's giving praise and glory and honor to God for what he's done. And part of her song brings up the promises that God made to no less than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she says, God, in this thing that you're doing with me now, through the birth of your son, this promise that I've received from the angel, she says, this is the fulfillment of the promise you made to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is it, fulfilled in Jesus. When I was a youth pastor, I used to like to use this uh, illustration of a little picture. And, and, And while there was a picture and it was empty... God's promises over here in a glass of water, or another pitcher of water, whatever. You could have little fulfillments along the way. So you see a righteous king in in the first or second king's stories that we've been through. You see a good one, little drop in the bucket. A fulfillment, a partial fulfillment. But when Jesus comes, he just poured the whole pitcher in as the entire thing came to the very top. Because Jesus is not just a fulfillment of God's promises. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. You need help with that. Circle that word all there in 2 Corinthians 120. All, all, all. Furthermore, God says that he's not willing that any should perish. And he calls all men everywhere to repent. Quotes from 2 Peter 3, nine and Acts 17.30. Just like he continually called out to Israel, turn to me, repent, come back. He's nevertheless still doing that today in the world to sinners. Turn to me, repent, come back to me. Because just as God judged his people Israel, he will judge every man according to his deeds. That's what Romans 2, 6 tells us. He will judge each man according to his deeds. And if we are judged according to our deeds, what does Paul go on to say we can expect from God except death and condemnation? Just like Israel being held responsible for their sins, Face God's judgment. If we face God's judgment according to our deeds, watch that, our deeds, the wages of our sin is death. And no one's exempt because Paul says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But there's good news in the gospel, it's what the gospel means, because Christ took our judgment And because Christ took our judgment, Paul says in Ephesians 2.13 that we who were far off, exiled, cast out, separated. While we were far off, Christ shed his blood that we might be brought near. So in Christ we are restored to God and we can offer him acceptable worship. And we would ask, well, what is acceptable worship? Well, what does Paul say acceptable worship is? I plead with you by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul says, this is your reasonable, acceptable worship. As we connect these dots to the gospel, let's remember how God has fulfilled all of his promises in Jesus. He is our king. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And by Him, we can offer acceptable worship to God as we repent and turn to Him in faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for these images and these pictures, as heartbreaking as they are, how they warn us and how they call us to turn away from our own sin and to trust you. How they have called us from a life of sin and death and wickedness to trust in Jesus and to turn to Him who took the judgment so that we wouldn't have to. I ask that you would help us to walk every day as your holy, sanctified, set-apart people. That we would guard ourselves from the influences of the world and the devil and sin. And we protect our heart by your Holy Spirit, by your word, by your church, through the ordinances that you would give us a hedge of protection against those influences in our life. That we might be your people whom you called and purchased with your own blood. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is our perfect priest, prophet, and king. And help us to look to him and to obey him every day. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 We'll see you next time.